please stand for the reading of God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. It's uncomfortable talking about sin, judgment, and condemnation. One pastor was asked why he didn't preach about sin very often, and his response was, I want to focus on the positive. It's uncomfortable to talk about sin and God's judgment, but it's critical. We don't get to the positives like a relationship with God, the hope, purpose, peace, fruit of the Spirit, eternal life, without going through a pathway of understanding God's judgment. Because we get all of those positive things by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. And we won't trust in Jesus as our Savior if we don't believe we need a Savior. And we won't believe we need a Savior until we realize that we stand condemned before God because of our sin. That's why it's critical for us to include the certainty of God's judgment when we share the gospel. Yes, it's hard to hear that. We prefer to see ourselves as good people, but the gospel says... We've not only wronged God and failed to love people as we should, we're sinners at heart. We're rebels against God's kingdom. We're spiritual adulterers who've spurned the love of God to find fulfillment in everything but Him. We've spurned God's law and established our own system of morality. 
We'd like to think of God as only loving and merciful, that he'll accept everyone no matter what, but that's our human perspectives based on what we think, not on a revelation from God. I don't like to think of myself as unhealthy, but I needed to hear that my blood sugar was high and my blood pressure is higher than it should be for me to begin to take my health more seriously. My wife didn't like to hear the diagnosis that she had cancer. But she might not be with us today if the doctor didn't speak those words to her. Her doctor wasn't being mean-spirited, judgmental, or didn't think she was better than Karen because she didn't have cancer. Her diagnosis and treatment was an expression of love to keep Karen on the path of life. Christians aren't mean-spirited, judgmental, and think they're better than others when they preach about God's judgment and the fact that people are separated from God unless they've trusted Jesus Christ. It's an act of love pointing people to the path of life. Understanding God's judgment isn't just important for people who don't believe, it's important for people who do believe as well. Because a watered-down gospel produces weaker Christians. You know, George Barna, he's known for his research he captures a reason why so many Christians aren't living out their faith as they should. And this is his conclusion. After poring over numerous national studies we've conducted since the early 80s, I believe that the issue is the way in which we've proposed Christianity to the boomer generation. At heart, boomers are consumers. We told them all they had to do was say a prayer admitting they made some mistakes, they're sorry, and want to be forgiven. And boomers weighed the downside, which really amounted to nothing more than a one-time admission of imperfections and weakness in return for a permanent peace with God and figured it's a no-brainer, I can't lose transaction. The consequence has been millions of boomers have said the prayer, asked for forgiveness, and went on with their lives with virtually nothing changed. Very few American Christians have experienced a sense of spiritual brokenness that compelled them to beg God for his mercy and acceptance through the love of Christ. We have a nation of Christians who took the best offer, but relatively few who were so humiliated and hopeless before a holy and omnipotent God that they cried out for undeserved compassion. We're going to see this morning that that wasn't the case for Jonah. His experience of God's judgment led him to cry out for undeserved compassion. And it changed the direction of his life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your spirit work in our hearts today. If we don't yet have faith in Christ, if we depended on a, a love of God that was devoid of 
holiness and omnipotence. May you speak to our hearts. Realize we stand before God that he can't accept our sins, but realize the love of God is so gracious, so wonderful. He sent his son for us. If we are believers, help us to be wise as we, we share the glorious positives of what Jesus Christ offers, but are willing to be clear that God's judgments rests on every one of us until we accept Christ. Lord, you teach each of us precisely what we need to know today. Amen. So the book of Jonah opens with God telling the prophet to preach an impending judgment on the Ninevites, a ruthless people who were subjugating nation after nation. Jonah resisted God's call and he took a ship in the opposite direction to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. But God's love for Jonah and Nineveh was too great to let him escape. God caused a tempestuous storm that threatened to break the ship apart. The terrified sailors understood that the storm was God's judgment. So they cast lots to determine who was the cause. The lot fell on Jonah. Attempting to save Jonah and themselves, they, they just, the sailors rowed more vigorously. But no one can outrun the judgment of God. They eventually tossed Jonah overboard at his request, and that's where our passage begins this morning. And we're going to see three movements in chapter 2. Jonah experienced God's judgment. This led him to cry out for salvation. And then once God saved him, he experienced a personal transformation. And applying this to ourselves this morning, I'm going to make three points. We need to realize God's judgment, call out to God for salvation, and allow God's salvation to transform our lives. So we start with realize God's judgment. Our passage depicts God's judgment on Jonah, but it opens with God's salvation as we see in chapter 1, verse 17. After Jonah is cast into the sea, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah would have drowned if the fish hadn't swallowed him. Now, it's tempting to read this story as a myth because it's so incredulous. Science can't account for miracles, which leads many people to disbelieve the truth of the story. However, history should also have a voice. As Travis pointed out last week, the author puts this story in a historical context by naming Jonah's father a real person and real time-space history. Another feature of the story's historicity is that it doesn't convey the story like myths do. It doesn't give the harrowing tale of being swallowed, what it was like to be encompassed by darkness while in the belly of the great fish, or a historic deed in 
getting Jonah out of the whale or what it felt like to finally reach shore. It doesn't go on and on about the experience of the fish, on and on about the miracle. It goes on and on about Jonah's prayer. And the most significant proof of the historicity of this story is the fact that Jesus himself twice references this story as being real and applies it to his day. He warned, quote, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he declared that the skeptics of his day would receive a sign they should not ignore. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. This story is not a myth because Jesus doesn't build his life on myths. Now, while our passage opens with God's provision for salvation, it quickly moves to Jonah's prayer, describing his experience of God's impending judgment. Jonah had hardened his heart to God. He blatantly rejected God's will, leading to God's first signal of judgment, the storm, the storm that threatened to the lives of the ship's crew and the passengers. And the sailors themselves knew that this was God's judgment, but Jonah remained silent about his sin until God's finger pointed at him. Only then did Jonah accept responsibility. He should have repented and been spared God's judgment, but he wouldn't. He would rather have died than give in to God or acknowledge his sin. He knew God's judgment was just and deserved, yet he wouldn't relent. Now, it's amazing to see how someone could be so convinced of his own way that he would rather die distant from God than consider that an eternal, all-knowing, wise, good God could be right and he could be wrong. Yet it happens every day. But something changed for Jonah when he physically and spiritually experienced God's judgment. We see in verses 2 and 3, Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Jonah felt like he was in Sheol, which is a place for the dead from which there is no escape. Now imagine a near-death experience where instead of going into this light and feeling a greater sense of love than you could have ever imagined, instead you walk into deeper and deeper darkness and experience a dread that was on, is beyond comprehension. There's no escape, only a pathway to deeper and deeper darkness. That's what Jonah must have felt. He was engulfed by the water and imprisoned by the seaweeds as he, they wrapped itself around him. 
And he fell deeper and deeper into the ocean till he hit the very bottom. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He sank to the bottom of the sea and he felt this is the end forever. There's nothing he could do to extricate himself from the bars of death. His condition was humanly hopeless. But there was a ray of hope in God. It took Jonah being brought to an inch away from his death to finally realize that hope. We see it in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. His experience was similar to that of one of the thieves on the cross. Matthew tells us that both thieves were mocking Jesus along with the, crowd, the crowds. But in Luke, we see that one of the thieves suddenly changed. He reprimanded the other thief for mocking Jesus, telling him that they both deserved death, but Jesus didn't. Jesus was innocent. And then he cried out to Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. How can we account for such a dramatic transformation, mocking Jesus to crying out for Jesus? It's because he faced imminent death and he only had one last ray of hope, Jesus. And he found out that that's the only hope he needed. As Jesus responded, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, in these stories, we see the steps for our salvation. We see it in Jonah, and we see it in the thief's experience. They acknowledge their sin. They are hopeless because they know they deserve God's judgment. They know they can't save themselves. They need a Savior. The thief in each of us can find that Savior in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now this does raise a question about Jonah's faith. It seems that he was a believer at the beginning of the story. I mean, after all, he was a prophet of God. But while this is most likely the case, the pattern is still there as we see in the thief for every unbeliever. Those are the steps for the unbeliever. But they're also important for us as believers to review over and over again how we were under the judgment of God and how we would still be under the judgment of God if it were not for the love of God in sending Jesus Christ for us. Because that begins to change our lives. That's how we live the Christian life in appreciation for what Christ has done in our lives. See, we love God. We love others because he first loved us. We have to experience that love. 
and not forget about it. And we don't know how much God loves us until we realize the price that Jesus Christ paid for us. You know, if a friend was house-sitting for me and I came home and he said, oh, I, uh, I paid a bill that you were due. I'd want to know what that bill was. My gratitude would be tied to how much he actually paid. <laughs> if he said, oh yeah, I paid for postage due, I'd say, well, great, thanks so much, I get this letter. But if he said, well, uh, you see, a foreclosure notice came, you hadn't paid your mortgage for the last year, and so I paid off that debt so your house wouldn't be foreclosed. I'd say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> The gratitude would be very different. It's when we understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ did. The mag and we don't understand that until we understand the magnitude of the judgment we were under. Jonah was feeling it experientially, and he cried out to God. If we diminish God's justice... We'll treat Jesus as though he paid for postage due. Jonah experienced it, and he called out for salvation. Jonah felt God's judgment. And we see in verse, this, the end of 17 in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You know, most of us see the, the great fish as a threat to Jonah's life. Like when Geppetto is in the, the belly of the whale, and Pinocchio has to come and rescue him. But in reality, the whale is what's the, excuse me, the great fish is what saved Jonah. That was his salvation. He was imprisoned by the seaweed at the bottom of the sea, destined to drown when the great fish swooped him up and provided a lifeline. It might have taken Jonah a little while to realize this fish is actually saving me, but we see from the passage he did come to realize that. As the ark of Noah saved his family from the judgment of God, Peter says that too is Jesus. That foreshadows Jesus. Because to be the judgment of God was a flood. And it was those who were in the ark who were saved. If you weren't in the ark, you experienced God's judgment. Jesus is the ark who saves us from the judgment of God. We could say the same about the belly of the great fish. Jonah was saved because he was in that belly. Jesus is that great fish who swoops down, offering himself to us if we allow ourselves to be brought into him through our faith in him.
So it's clear by the last phrase Jonah offers, salvation belongs to the Lord, that this chapter is giving us that pattern of salvation. So let's revisit it. Jonah realized the severity of God's judgment. He called out to be saved, and God answered that call by providing a great fish. So the question is, how do we call out to the Lord for salvation? There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 that shows us. It's a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee goes up to the temple and he expresses his self-righteousness and why God should save him based on his merits. But the tax collector goes up, beating his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he was a sinner who needed mercy because he was condemned by God. His only hope was God's mercy. God, be merciful to me. I've pointed this out in the past, but the words be merciful in this passage are literally be propitious to me. See, he wasn't, he wasn't saying, you know, God, I'm a sinner, but since you're merciful and you're all loving, accept me anyway. No, the word propitious means to be satisfied. And so, what does God need to satisfy? He needs to satisfy his own sense of justice. He can't let sin go unpunished. The tax collector didn't know how God would do it, but he trusted that God in some way would satisfy his own justice because he knew he couldn't. God answered that prayer and all our prayers like it by sending Jesus, his son, to pay the penalty of our sin, to take the judgment of God so we don't have to bear it. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for, by his blood to be received by faith. Now, you see three big theological words in this passage. The first is justified. And what that says is that a believer in Jesus Christ is justified in that God no longer sees his sin, but sees him or her clothed in the righteousness of God. You know, it's like when God looks at us, because, believer, <clears throat> because we're in Christ, he sees Jesus. That's justification. Redemption is to be bought out by someone who paid a price for us. And it speaks of God, of Jesus Christ purchasing us 
buying us out, buying our forgiveness of sin by his death, buying us from bondage, slavery to sin, so we can have a new life. The third word, propitiation, speaks about satisfaction. God's holiness and justice need to be satisfied. God is just. If he forgave sin without any penalty being paid, he wouldn't be just, he wouldn't be true to himself. When we say, God, because you're loving, accept me, we're also saying, God, don't be holy, don't be just, only be loving. We're asking God to not be who he is. And in reality, do we want a God who is not just? We all want a just God. If a judge let the Boston Marathon bomber off without a penalty, we'd all call that judge unjust. We'd want him fired because he has no sense of justice. The same would be true of God if he had no sense of justice. But God's justice and love come together at the cross. God loves us and wants us to be with him, but his love can't nullify his justice. But because God so loved the world, he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sin. And in doing so, he's both just and loving. If we don't have a sense of the severity of God's judgment, we won't cry out to God for salvation like the tax collector. It's possible that there's some people listening here today who may have asked Jesus into their hearts, might have said, I receive you, Lord. They might have even said, I give my life to Christ, but aren't trusting Christ as a Savior. We can do these things without realizing that we stand condemned before God and we desperately need a Savior. That's the only way to Christ. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. You know, I was recently talking with a professing Christian who was living a life displeasing to the Lord. And so I asked him, did, did you receive Christ as Savior? And he said, yes. And he pointed to a time and date in his life. That's when I received Jesus. But because of the way he was living his life, I pushed a little further and said, yeah, but was that an intellectual exercise? Or did you really receive Christ as Savior? Were you like a drowning man crying out for the lifeguard, crying out for a Savior? Did you really understand your sin and the weight of that and the judgment of God that it brought that you could cry out, I need a Savior and that Savior is Jesus? And he said, no, I guess it was more an intellectual decision. Are we like the tax collector who realizes, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? Are we like Jonah going to the bottom of the sea, crying out, who will save me? Lord, you, you can save me. We need 
to understand the severity of God's justice and call out to him. And when we receive that kind of salvation, our lives will begin to be transformed. Allow God's, God's salvation to transform us. You know, God's salvation not only saves us, but it can lead and should lead to transform lives like it did in Jonah's life. We see that in verse 9. After being saved, Jonah promised this. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed. What I, excuse me, what I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. For you remember the storm in chapter 1. That got the sailors to cry out to the Lord. And when the sea calmed and they realized they were saved, the passage says, Then the, mere, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. They were transformed into worshipers of the one true God. And ironically, they were worshiping the God that Jonah was abandoning. <clears throat> It took Jonah's near-death experience to change him. And when he was, he mirrored the transformation of the sailors. He thanked God. He said he'd offer the sacrifice and that he'd keep his vows. And then he closed with a celebration of goodness. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we see that Jonah now obeys God's command. He goes to Nineveh. He warns them of God's judgment, which was the very thing he loathed so much he was willing to die rather than do it. The gospel transforms lives. But we want to give two warnings. The first shows up in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Let's look at that again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Contrary to public opinion, although God is love and desires that everyone be saved, not everyone will be saved. God's grace is not extended to people who trust in false idols, trusting in false gods. Trusting in our own righteousness. It's not to anyone who trusts in their eternity to anything but Jesus. And we see the same lesson in the two thieves who flanked Jesus on the cross. As it's often said, there were two thieves alongside Jesus. One to show that anyone can be saved even a criminal who deserved death. The other to show that not everyone is saved. The second lesson comes later in the book. <clears throat> in our chapter, Jonah rejoices in the Lord. Next chapter, he obeys him. But we're going to see that Jonah's heart doesn't seem to stay with God because he ends up resenting the conversion of the Ninevites. 
It's a lesson for every believer. We can have a good start when we first believe when we're captivated by Christ's sacrifice for us. We can love him because he first loved us. But if we don't keep that trust at the center of our lives, we'll drift away from the Lord. As Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch can be filled with fruit, but as soon as you sever it from the vine, it's going to dry up. It needs to stay connected. The same with us as believers in Christ. Our lives are determined day by day in staying connected to Christ. That's where the transformation comes. You know, it began with a story about a preacher who didn't preach much about sin because he wanted to focus on the positive. You know what the most positive, beautiful, and glorious truth in all of Scripture is? That God so loved us that while we were yet sinners, He sent Jesus and Christ died for us. That's the positive message. But we don't get to that message without first understanding the severity of God's judgment. We can't get to that message until we know the extent of our sin and the magnitude of God's judgment. Only then will we grow in our knowledge of the heights and depths and widths and breadths of the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. You see, the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. We're all forgiven much, but many of us don't realize how much because we don't realize the magnitude of God's justice. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think about sin or judgment, even as Christians, that that's in the past. Father, it seems that I and perhaps each of us need to remember our Jonah experience. Remember the condemnation from which God has saved us. So we will more and more greatly appreciate what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.